Hey there, howdy, and welcome to Humans of Magic. This week, there's not going to be a fancy intro. Instead, I'm just going to tell you about my guest, Michael Clifford, aka Cliffy, is a friend of mine. We met while playing the Legacy format a couple of years ago. We played a few GPs together, and I wanted to give this intro because Michael is not someone who is as well known in the magic content space. Michael is a brilliant mind, a guy with many interests just like me. He's really into the intersection of poker and magic, which is what we explore here. See, Michael went from a competitive magic player playing Storm Combo in the Legacy format to actually becoming a full-time poker pro. And we've had a lot of interesting conversations over the years. We decided this time, let's just turn the camera on. Let's talk about it. We talk about a bunch of interesting topics. For example, how Michael leveled up in magic, how he leveled up in poker, why Loris is absolutely broken in Storm Combo, the time that it was legal, game theory, what game theory optimal is in poker, all that fun stuff. Michael, aka Cliffy, is absolutely wonderful to talk to. He told me afterwards, James, we had a lot of tangents in this episode. I apologize. And I told him, no need to apologize. Humans of Magic is all about wonderful conversation and therefore wonderful tangents. So please enjoy this episode with Michael Clifford. All right, Michael, how are you doing today? I am doing very great. Thanks for having me on, James. It's a pleasure. Uh, before we get started, I want to know, is it, do you prefer Cliffy? Do you prefer Michael? Mike? Like, what's the story here? Uh, I guess let's go with Cliffy, because that's what most of the magic world knows me as. If, if your first name's Michael you, and you grew up in America, you probably go by anything, really. Is that, is every... that true? It's like there's just too many Michaels in a, in, a, in a school or in a class or something? Yeah, and I don't think I ever had a, a, a single class where I was the only Michael, at least for my generation. Yeah, I guess I got kind of lucky just being James. There's only like maybe one other James in a class. But you're right, like Michael must be one of the most common first names out there, right? Maybe David or I don't know what else. I know it's pretty high up. I don't I don't have a stat to say how high, but it's definitely a very common name in Western America. Yeah. So Cliffy, why don't we just get started by telling the listener reviewer a little bit about yourself? Like, how did you get into magic? Or maybe I should say, how did you get into competitive magic? Sure. Uh, so I started the way a lot of people did playing with uh, kids at school. Um, I learned from a, uh, like a daycare, like we had YMCA kind of after school programs growing up for when parents work, you know, I played with the kids there. One of the one of the uh, the supervisors taught me how to play, uh, played pretty casually, just like with kids and stuff for fun and really enjoyed it, took off, um, just asked as a kid all the time for all my gifts to be magic cards, you know. <laughs> and uh, then I wanted to, when I got a little older, I understood that most of the people I'm playing against like don't really have a clue that's going on. I really want to see what competitive magic looks like. I uh, made a trip down to my local LGS and they explained kind of what the formats were. And I really didn't have any ability to acquire standard cards. So I decided Legacy was a good option because I can play with anything I want. And so I show up, I bring some 60 card pile of nonsense 
and, you know, get my ass kicked. And then someone goes, you should look online for sites. And online, I found deck lists, I found articles, I found content of people creating stuff, and it just kind of clicked. Uh, and then I started showing up to some proxy events. Our local scene was really good about proxies Where was for this a while. Scene? Were you on the West Coast, East Coast? Oh, yeah, California. I should specify that, yeah. Okay. Uh, I grew up in California, uh, North California. I played a lot at the shop Outer Plains. Uh, kind of built one deck and rode with it as long as I could. Uh, <laughs> I started playing some kind of brain dead decks. And then as soon as we started proxying things, I started trying a bunch of other stuff. Uh, oh, what does chalice deck feel like? What does a blue deck feel like? What does uh, a prison deck feel like? Proxies are really nice for helping a local scene. Uh, and I just started showing up every week. I found what worked that I liked. Um, I really started to like blue decks in Magic. The, a lot of decisions you get to make are fun. You get a lot of the ability to learn the mechanics of the game when you play blue which is something I really like. It felt like if I were to hand someone a legacy deck and I told them this is the best deck to learn the game with, it would probably be Delver because you get to see how your pieces interact with theirs and you learn a lot that way. Uh, and then I added Settling on Miracles. I was a big fan of that deck. Uh, I started playing on Magic Online, uh, started talking to a lot of friends, made a lot of friends the locals. Um, <laughs> one of my best friends, Cyrus... I remember his first day back at this is at the uh, Cyrus Corman Gill, right? Yes, yeah, he was on your cast uh, like a couple of years ago, I think, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, it was. <laughs> he was also proxying decks, and he was back uh, apparently after a long break. I remember we were both just playing horrible. Like he's trying to like Snapcaster Ponders on my end step, and I'm trying to like cast basically doom blades at his face and stuff you know we're just we're we're both just button clicking and then we end up talking and we become friendly um he absolutely hated all the decks i played because i played a lot of cheap combo decks and he hated that <laughs> uh that's right he didn't start off as a combo player right that's what I no remember. no he really liked burn and delver um and fair decks and i was like why don't you just catch show and tell cyrus it's really fun yeah <laughs> Uh, yeah, and, and we, uh, we had a lot of fun playing Legacy together, um, after weeklies, we'd, you know, hang out, maybe we eat food and jam games, we built some very atrocious Legacy decks just for fun, just absolute tier 6 garbage piles, and we'd test against each other at, like, 4am with his tier 6 Chromox Goblin nonsense versus my, like, predict aggro Goblin Guide combo nonsense decks. I guess that's where uh, he got. That's when he got his love of Goblin Guide. He's always been like referencing yeah, Goblin Guide. I think, yeah, <laughs> probably. Uh, yeah, and so I was playing Miracles for a long time, and I uh, ended up never being able to beat some really good pilots online that were playing combo decks. So I decided to proxy it up, and oh my god, was it a blast! Um, this and is then... some sort of storm combo deck. That you started? Oh, yeah, yeah. I, I proxied up Ant. Okay. First, I played Ant. I thought it was too tough, so I started playing Tess, and then I realized By the way, just, just because tougher. this podcast might not be for, like, super legacy affluent oh, yeah. people, I'm just going to, like, try to make you clarify every single acronym. So, Ad Nauseam Tendrils, right? That's the Storm yes. Combo deck. Okay. I, yes. Uh, I'll explain. Ad Nauseam Tendrils is uh, a Storm-based combo deck that 
most of the time tries to win at the last second possible. It likes to very slowly uh, set someone up for failure rather than a faster version of the deck, the Epic Storm, just looking for the best window and taking it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, I found that the Epic Storm is a little harder to play because you end up playing from behind a lot more, where with Ant Ad Nauseam Tendrils, uh, it's really like a game of inches, like... Something I really like about the deck is that you learn little interactions, little level-up moments. Um, and I feel that that really taught me how to learn strategy games in, in, a, uh, in a grand sense of finding these little level-up moments. Mm -hmm. uh, so I ended up moving mostly to that deck. I realized that if you just put in volume and you goldfish it a bunch, you get better. It's really a deck that rewards you for putting in mass volume and playing it smart too. Mm -hmm. uh, Rewatching your matches, finding things. I used to stream just so I could watch VODs of me playing it back. You know, it's a really good deck to mm. watch yourself play and you go, well, that was stupid. So just to backtrack a little bit, you said you started learning magic, uh, you know, way back. And what was the amount of time before between like just playing Magic casually to then going to your LGS? And how mm -hmm. old were you when you went to your LGS? I was probably 12 or 13. And I think I started playing when I was eight or so. So about four to five years of playing as a kid. And when I became a teenager, it, was, it seemed a little more attractive because you show up to a weekly, you know, it's fun. You tell your friends, oh, I played it tournament and they go you know because they're 12 <laughs> sure and uh you stuck with legacy all this time you said you went from standard to legacy fairly quickly but did you just stay with legacy on that track i just enjoyed the freedom to play whatever cards are in the existence of the game you see a new list come out you get to play it um i dislike the rotating element of the game just because you know it's hard to obtain cards that are going to be worthless in two years. Yeah. Especially yeah. when you're a kid and unemployed. Yeah. I hear that. I mean, even, even coming back into magic as an adult, like, cause that's, that's basically what I did. I, I played magic in, I want to say like started in the nineties and then I basically dropped off and didn't play at all, like in the early two thousands. And then when I got back in 2008 or 2009, I just decided to play legacy cause that was actually just, kind of similar reason right it's just just that i could play any card i wanted and there was also a whole bunch of cards that i missed out on because i didn't play magic during a certain era so i was just like okay well legacy seems good for that and also what you said which is about cards now rotating out right just be able to uh theoretically play a deck forever although i guess we now know in legacy that's not that's not quite true either but uh it was true at for the a time bit. it was at the time it was kind of the value proposition so when I started, you could just take a stock D&T list, put it down for two years, pick it up, and it would be fine. Mm. Yeah. And now they're just printing, like, new D&T creatures, like, every, I don't know, three, Every set has, yeah. Every every year there's a new initiative that, uh, there's a new uh, Freudian slip, there's a new there's a new mechanic, i.e. initiative, that you have to keep track of, and there's, like... Some outside-the-game mechanic. Yeah, exactly. Dungeon. Legacy is a good format, though, to just put things down. I agree with that. It's a good format. Yeah. You can take a deck, put it down. It's been a little bit harder, though, recently to do that. Yeah. And um, I think you were also involved, like you, you played Legacy like 
pretty much nonstop, right? Like from from what what you said back then to now. Yeah, so I I was interested in magic, and it was my favorite hobby through most of my like adolescent life. And then when I was getting to the end of high school, I was getting I bought into Moto, and that spiked a uh, that that kind of hit a spark, you know. <laughs> Yeah, um, I started sure. playing show and tell decks while Dig Through Time was legal. I was playing that Omnitel deck nonstop. It was really fun. Um, and then at one point, I, I don't really remember when I made the change. I do remember watching a lot of coverage matches of people playing Storm. And I'd watch Caleb Schur and Rodrigo Tagores, and they're just outplaying everyone left and right. And then you watch a coverage match, and it's some random guy, and... It's a, a name you've never heard of that's in the feature match, and they're playing the deck, and it kind of gives a little bit of hope that this guy I've never heard of is also winning with the deck. You know, it's not... There was this big aura of, you know, you must put in 10,000 hours before you can even goldfish the deck, and that's just nowhere near true. But when you are spectating someone playing the deck, and you yourself has have never picked it up, it looks like the gap from you and them is monstrous, but there's... Really, that 20% of the work gets 80%. That 80-20 rule would apply, I think, in this, you know. So what would you recommend for someone who's trying to pick up Storm Combo for the first time if they were actually starting Legacy today? Uh, I, I I would pick up an Nauseam Tendrils list, not the Epic Storm list, because the Epic Storm list requires a lot of format knowledge. You need to know where your windows open and when they close, and that varies based on decks you're against. Um, for example, if you're against an Ancient Tomb deck, they might just slam a Karn and you lose. Um, I would pick a very stock list. I would play it versus yourself a bunch. I would try to play it online, record matches. Um, I like to record even when I play because the replay tool on Magic Online hasn't been very good for most of the time I've played on the client. So get into Magic Online is one of those things. Get into Magic play. Online. Talk to people about it. If you're playing it at your weeklies, ask people. Um, don't be results-oriented. That's extremely important. Um, understand that variance is okay. You like Magic is a game of variance. Storm is a deck of variance. Sometimes you need to accept volatility in order to win. You need to build the decision-making skills and be comfortable losing to variants, but also not try to jack up volatility just for fun. Yeah. I've coached people on Storm. Some people, they try to ad nauseum every window they get. Some people are deathly afraid of it because what if I die? Well, then you die. And then you click join next match and you try again. That's what happens. Mm-hmm. So what would you recommend to someone who's like gone past the sort of basics and the goldfishing and maybe have played a number of matches? Like how do they get to a little bit of a higher level? Because I, I guess I can just speak from personal experience, right? Like I I picked up Ad Nauseam Tendrils at some point in my legacy career, if you could call it that. Like I yeah. think I played it when Shardless Bug was one of the most dominant decks and basically you got free wins or match wins against that deck when it when that was a dominant deck uh, i remember playing i even remember playing it at a at a gp a legacy gp i think um but what i found was like when i um it was hard for me to like i don't know what i don't know how to phrase the question exactly it's more like i hit a point where i sort of felt like i plateaued where um i knew kind of the 
basics, but I was never able to do better than maybe like six two or like five three in a tournament. Like I'm, sh I'm, I'm wondering if you have advice for people who are wanting to get over that hill or get over that bump. Yeah, well, the first thing I would remember is that six two and five three are actually pretty, pretty darn good records. <laughs> um, and in a single tournament, there is an absurd amount of variance that occurs no one will win a gp unless they got extremely lucky it doesn't matter if they're terrible or amazing if they're playing the best deck or the worst deck you got extremely lucky for that to happen um i would say it is always important to when they're thinking make sure you're thinking because your deck takes a good amount of thought um think about don't think of the game as this is my game plan think of it as decision trees I have, this is the most desirable plan, but my opponent can interact with me. If they interact with me this way, this next decision tree is the best one. If they interact with me a different way, this is the best. Thinking of just all the micro decisions, like when you ponder, if you're planning on pondering, keeping a card and shuffling, you might think the order of the next two cards are irrelevant, but it's not. There are scenarios where you decide that you don't want to fetch. There are scenarios you don't get to fetch. There are scenarios that you float a card on top and you get surgical and you wish you floated it differently. There are lots of decisions that seem almost irrelevant, but in the long term for your growth of a player, they're very important. So I would say considering decisions, even when you don't think they're relevant at all, even when they aren't relevant at all, it is still good practice, like how you sequence your spells. Um, there's a certain order that you want to play your rituals. There's certain sequencing decisions when going off. A lot of times there's like an all paths lead to Rome kind of thing going on. Um, and it really doesn't matter what you do. And if you miss sequence in those spots, there's no chance. Like if, if you're just playing against a death and taxes player and they're tapped out and they have no hate bears in play, it does not matter what you do as long as you put a tendrils on the stack at the end. Mm -hmm. But it's good yeah. to think about, well, if they have a fairy macabre, should I sequence this way so that I don't lose threshold? If they have a mind break trap, how do I lose the least possible amount of resources? Mm. That's often what I found to be the hardest when I was playing the deck was that you needed to always have a lot of mental horsepower computing all the time because you're always trying to think about what they could have or what they're most likely to have, right? Like you said, like even if they're tapped out, maybe they have a surgical, maybe they have a fairy macabre, maybe... I mean, surgical is a terrible example, as we know, but, um, you know, it could, things could happen. So you're, you're trying to figure out, or I guess, uh, these days it's like, what do they have a veil of summer or something? Right. So <laughs> yeah. you're, you're trying to figure out like, um, what are all the possible things that they could have? And what I found to be challenging for me, at least in the past was like, I, I have this tendency to sometimes like overthink what they might have and then almost like play too conservatively. So I wonder if you have like advice for that as well. It's like where you're trying to play around everything because it's kind of like a hallmark of a magic player right oh man i absolutely do so i have i have a friend in poker that also plays for a living um and we talk about in poker hand reading is a skill that kind of applies to magic if you're playing against a blue white opponent and they miss their second land drop you can hand read that they probably have seven spells in their hand that's not too difficult similarly if you're in game three versus delver which is the tempo archetype and they don't lead on a creature you're probably not going to want to just fire off your combo into the abyss because they probably have seven interactive spells if they kept a hand without a threat 
because in that matchup, you're favored in the long run. So if they kept to hand, and then there's, you know, there's this whole critical thinking. Um, it's not so much of a math thing as it is logic and thinking about every decision they do does give you a little piece of info and applying all those little pieces of info. So when you're concerned about them having a force or a surgical or a fluster storm, consider things like, did they delay on a threat? Did they play their Delver on turn two instead of turn one? Um, did they ponder shuffle four times because <laughs> there's a good chance they got nothing? Yep. Um, what windows did they have to take actions and chose not to? What windows did they take actions instead of holding up interaction? Um, thinking about all the little pieces of info that they give you without meaning to. Um, and one of my poker friends, we talk about the whole range of hands they can have. But in his head, he really focuses on, well, these are the strongest hands they can have. And if they have those, I can lose all my money. But they can also have all of the nonsense that is just total nothing. They can have the bluffs. They can have the middling parts of their hands. They can have... There's more than just the, the existence of them having the nutted five-card interactive hand. That is something they can have, but it's more likely they have two or three pieces of interaction. And sometimes they have none. Mm -hmm. Or sometimes and they have I the start nuts, and if you figure it out that they have the nuts, then you're not winning anyway, so you kind of have to move forward on the assumption that they don't, or something to that effect, right? Yeah, absolutely. If you can't beat it, why play around it? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's just there's just so many um, intricacies with Storm, and I'm just wondering, like, what keeps you involved in playing this archetype? Like, what makes it interesting for you? I, I feel like you sort of already touched on us some of the answers, but I, I kind of want to hear straight from you. Uh, I really like trying new cards when they come out, just in case they stick. This new pair of dice lost card is absurd. Um, it's the most broken card I've seen in this deck since maybe ever since I've been playing the deck. And we do have the shell really? for it to come I, around. I've got to. I've got to say, Loris has got to be in there, right? I think you were oh, playing sorry. Loris. Excuse when, me. Excuse when me. You're a correct. Errata companion. When every deck was playing Loris for free, right? You're absolutely <laughs> correct. I forgot about that because mine got it got banned before I got my life copy. I did play a whole lot of that on Magic Online. Yeah, it, that was a whole different deck. You know, you're cutting preordains for baubles. You're sideboarding dead weights because it's just a lawn mower versus death and taxes. <laughs> That was just such a, a special period of magic, like when Storm decks were running Lurus, right? Because you, it's basically free, I guess, for, for it, most decks. The, the very first beyond time free. I booted up a league, yeah, beyond, way beyond free. The very first time I booted up a Stormless with Lurus, I had a turn one kill that could not have been a turn one kill without Lurus. Because I needed the extra two Storm of play Lurus, bring back LED, crack it. And it's just free. It's just free to do that. Yeah. Yeah. I, unfortunately, I didn't play Storm during that time, but uh, I did see, I, you might have been streaming or you might have posted something about Loris, or maybe it was like Cyrus or one of, one of you guys. And it was, it was just absurd to, to even hear about that. I'm sure <laughs> so. I tweeted a bunch about it when it came out. Another yeah, helpful yeah. thing is Jataxian Probe. When I started playing Storm, Jataxian Probe was legal. And man, is it much easier to learn just what hands look like over the course of the game. Mm -hmm. um, if you can just see their hand, it's become so much easier to play without Probe if you started playing with Probe. 
So maybe testing with someone and if you can do magic online testing and see their side, I really like seeing both sides. It's something we do in poker too, is when you study a spot, you want to study both sides because you don't just want to know what you're doing. You want to know how they're supposed to react. So right. <laughs> remember how I mentioned Cyrus and I are doing, we're, we're playing garbage matches at like 4 a.m. Sometimes we'd swap decks and be like, oh my God, what, what have you done here? <laughs> So, I found that uh, helps. I, I know you've already kind of touched on it, but I, I want to know, like, how did you, how did you get start playing poker? I know you've been full time for a while, but but even just getting into the game, competitive poker, like, how how did that happen for you? Uh, I'm sure I played a bunch with my friends for zero stakes, as you do as a kid, because it sounds fun. Um, and that was probably how I learned the rules of the game. Um, the first real involvement point of poker in my life. I remember the day I was supposed to be, I, I'm a senior in college to set the scene. I'm a senior in college. I'm a double major. I was on Dean's list for two years and my grades are starting to slip because my classes are getting tougher. I'm getting more and more credits. I'm sitting in study. What what did you double major in? uh, I doubled in jazz studies and applied mathematics. So you're a jazz musician as well. I am a jazz musician. I still do perform jazz. I still do that as part of my income too. Okay. What instrument do you play? I play drums. Uh, I started playing in elementary school, did all the school programs up to that. And I really got a desire for it in high school. It was enough to make me start to put more of my energy into music than sports. Um, then there's in high school, there's all these programs like honor bands and then um, advanced after, after school kind of course things for music for the more interested students, the ones that really want to do it in college. And although I wasn't one of those, a lot of my friends were. Um, and so I kind of joined them and got more of a desire for music in high school. Okay, and then I, know, I, I know this is totally sidetracking from what you were going to say, but how, <laughs> what are your thoughts of, around the movie Whiplash? Oh, it's, it's a pretty good film, in my opinion. Um, some some parts of it aren't very accurate. Um, professor, yeah, but the professor screaming—that is something I have seen and witnessed. Not in my ensembles, like my college classes. All the professors were great. None of them were abusive or anything. But I have seen and heard stories of things that serious. A lot of the there's old stories of bebop musicians getting cymbals thrown at their head and stuff like from the movie that one uh that that stuff does happen um and a lot of the musicians they want it really 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 badly it is if you do not if you are not willing to be a martyr of music it is a hard industry to succeed in um communication of course is very important if you're trying to go down the world-class route say i want to be part of the san francisco orchestra that's going to be different than I want to get as much middle level work as possible and make a living. Those are kind of two different approaches for a musician. You can be the well-rounded guy that can do everything and he's very good at communicating and he secures gigs and he has backups and he has connections, or you can be the, the maestro prodigy approach mm-hmm. as a musician. Mm-hmm. Um, I didn't want that much of music to that degree at that point in my life. Um, I, one of the toughest things was me as a musician, just being, 
you know, cream of the crop where I came from. And then I go to a university and everyone around it wants it as much as me or more. And they can't get practice time because all the practice rooms are filled. It's like, what is going on? Everyone is practicing all the time. That's true for a lot of disciplines, right? Like uh, when you, when you grow up, you do something, you love it. You're probably like, um, big fish in a small pond. And then you get to the next level literally. And it's just like, everybody wants it just as much. And there maybe some of them are more talented than you. Like it, it's just like a whole mental adaptation, right? Not, not to mention yeah. the practice space, as you said. The pond feeds into the ocean and you see a shark for the first time. You're like, oh, what's this? Yeah. And then you have to decide, am I the shark or am I the, the guppy or you got to figure it yeah. out pretty quick. Um, or can I hang in the middle? Yeah. Uh, so yeah, sorry. Going back to what you're saying, like you were doing a, your double major, uh, oh, yeah. senior year and, uh, I'm a double major in music and math and I have a 5,000 word paper on Beethoven due the next day. And I have done lots of research. I have not done much of the actual paper and I'm sitting in the cafeteria and I start writing, I decide to take a break and I play, I play around a storm on my laptop in the cafeteria. And then a weird spot comes up. Someone messages me about sideboarding. Um, I decided that I didn't have a definitive written out sideboard guide. I know how I sideboard in like 90% of matchups. I haven't ever taken pen to paper and written it out for something to publish. So that kind of sparked me to just write this massive sideboard guide. And I ended up writing like a 7,000 word sideboard guide instead of instead my 5,000 word paper. Word yeah. And I wrote this fat sideboard guide, and I just put it out for free and it was extremely popular. And one of the people that messaged me and said they really liked it, or one of the people that followed me and left a comment on it, is a guy named Jonathan Little. And he is, was a formerly, player, right? yes, yeah. he is a poker player, but he, was formerly he's a big magic fan he was a very high rated apparently well. there were yeah apparently there used to be global rankings for legacy and vintage and he was highly ranked in vintage um but he followed me i started going through i followed him back i watched some of his stuff that he published um i checked out his free stuff he checked out my stuff i was very interested when someone of a you know, it's not every day that someone with 50K, 100,000 followers likes my random paper that I posted at Bomb in the cafeteria. Mm -hmm. I, check, I checked out his stuff. Um, I remember thinking, oh, this is interesting. I'm going to save it and check it out later. Um, and then I remember I was doing a musical gig locally. And just on all the downtime, I was going through all his free stuff. He had like two books that were about 100 pages each that were free. Just publicly out there's a pdf i read them both i got a free trial on his training site um i could start to see the overlaps of what i understand from magic start to overlap like the really general game theory concepts mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. uh and something sparked and i just kind of took off uh, i got a subscription to his site i started playing extremely i was playing two cent four cent stakes online which is a four dollar buy-in maximum game which is for poker, it's on the pretty small side. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, just so I could get going, you don't want to play for no money because people will just go all in for fun and you won't learn anything. You might learn the rules of the game, but that's about it. Mm -hmm. And so what I, I kind of... What happened to the Beethoven paper? Did you finish it? Mm, maybe not. <laughs> <laughs> 
But I might you, not have finished that paper. Did you did you did you like decide to stop college or did you did you still end up graduating from uh from your getting your two double majors? Um I I did end up dropping out, but it wasn't that semester. It was the following semester when COVID started. All of our classes became electronic. Learning music electronically is a little difficult. Having the incentive to go to a GE class that I had zero interest in. <laughs> also harder from online. Um, I, I kind of just really lost all the desire that I had. I had a lot of desire in my freshman, sophomore year, and then I kind of just got ground down. Um, GEs were really, really tough for me to balance. When you have a music class that is one unit or two units, but it takes up 15, 20 hours a week at least. And then on top of that, I have this four unit GE that's taking up less time, but I have even less desire for it. it I wasn't very good at playing the American education system game. Um, I would definitely just take classes that I wanted and I would show up to the ones that I wanted and try to scrape by and the GE kind of things that I didn't care about. And honestly, my professors in the GE classes just thought that their class was the most important thing in the world. Every, every professor probably thinks their class is the most important class, you sure. know, but when you have this system where everyone takes classes they like, and then they have to take classes they don't like, you might understand that though, that the vast majority of your students are like, that's just your scenario. <laughs> so on a scale of one to 10, how, how much should poker have to do with you ultimately dropping out? Uh, probably an eight or a nine, pretty high up there. I, I wasn't just missing class to miss it. I was missing class because I had things that were grabbing my attention more than that. I wasn't just being lazy at home. Um, sometimes that thing was magic though, and it probably shouldn't have been. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, but a lot of times, so when, when COVID started, my daily regimen was go to classes or don't that are online, have my coffee, open up a training thing on Jonathan Little's site. I spent about two hours for about six months or so. I've, the, the whole last semester. So let's see, that was March through June and then two months after. So five months, I think I spent about five months just taking myself to poker college. Kind of, I just was a college student, not doing college work. And I was, was studying your, poker, your real education. Yeah. That was, that was kind of what I was doing. I spent a lot of time before I had money to play studying. I would, I started by playing really, really small stakes and I couldn't beat those. And that was very irritating to me because I'm putting in all this work. It was going to be easier, right? I thought it would be, no, I didn't think it would be easier. I thought that my adversaries would not be as tough. Mm. And then I ended up finding out that it wasn't that I wasn't winning. It's that the rake is very high and the sites just take a very large percent out of the pot. When the stakes of the game are small. The house doesn't care if you're playing small stakes or huge stakes. It's the same cost for them to operate no matter what stakes are being played. Yeah. When you get to higher stakes, there might be um, difficulty in moving money around. Those aren't stakes that I'm going to be playing. I'm playing $4 buy-in, $10 buy-in cash games. And 
struggling because of the rake, not because of the players are too tough. It's because every hundred hands, they take about 10 big blinds. And if I'm winning at eight big blinds, it looks like I'm losing two, but I'm really winning eight big blinds per hundred hands. And that's yeah. a win rate you can live off of if you're in the right stakes. It's like financial investing where the, um, the fund takes such a high uh, rake from the management fees that it just wipes out your gains, right? Where you have to go yeah, like, but... above and beyond just to keep above water. So that, that's, that can be really tough. Was that the main driver for you to move up in stakes? I'm trying to figure out how that progression went for you. No, it was the main driver for me to study and put a whole lot of work into my game. Um, I remember just, I'd wake up, breakfast, go to my class, have coffee. I'd sit down. I would spend two hours basically studying one hand. I would say, okay, so they're here. I'm here. I should have these hands. They should have these hands. Then when the board comes out, based on the actions that have happened, I'm going to manually write out all of the hands I can have and all of the hands they can have. And then when they take an action, that's going to filter because some of my hands will do different things. Kind of like what I was saying that when they don't play something on turn one, it's more likely they're holding something up. You can deduce little things, and that's how Jonathan Little teaches you to think about the game. And it's a really good way to think about the game. It's like a process of elimination. Um, and I would spend time just studying the spots, learning the heuristics. I spent probably more time on my own game before I started playing than anyone I'm anyone in my player pool. Mm -hmm. um, I do think that me choosing to dive into it with no backup plan, really. I, I did, when I did finally drop out, <laughs> I had a very awkward phone call with my mom. <laughs> Told her, Mom, I don't want to finish this. What I want to do is play poker, and I want to do this for a living, and I know I can. And that obviously didn't go well. She tried nonstop to get me to just finish so I have my degree. Yeah. I made a deal with her that if things aren't good in a year, I'll go back and finish. Mm -hmm. um, but I, I took that year off, and having that year window for me to prove myself in a strategy game, I knew I wanted to do something in the strategy realm. I had that realization at one point that strategy is just, if I could make a living as a strategist, that's what I want to do. There's nothing that brings me more satisfaction when I complete. There's nothing that I have more drive for. There just isn't something that will inspire me as much as looking at two strategies and how they interact. So it, when you're playing like when you're playing an instrument or you're working through a math problem, it doesn't give you the same kind of satisfaction or engagement. Music does give a kind of similar one. There's a conversation being had. That's what I really like about jazz is the, the, the conversation. Right? Yeah, yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. That's my favorite part of the jazz realm is the musicians interacting between each other on a chart. Everyone's played 400 times, but it's these four musicians playing it and they've played it a hundred times with each other, with other people by themselves. But every time it comes up, it's something new and beautiful. It's always unique. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. But, uh, but you still, I mean, I guess all things considered, you think strategy is like what you want to do, like where you, or you want to spend most of your time doing, right? It, it, it's just what comes to my brain the most. It's what I just, okay. Yeah. It's my passion. It's just strategy.
So you I like to find mom, strategy and <laughs> you, you, you give yourself the one year ultimatum and then what happens? Um, I give her a one year ultimatum. I propose that I pull some money out of my, uh, life savings account. I had, uh, an inheritance from my dad. He passed away when I was in high school. Um, I wanted to pull a percent of that out to, to, to take my shot. And she said, no way in hell you're going to get a job. It's like, okay, I guess I'll get a job. Where do I get a job? How about a casino? <laughs> I go to the casino. Um, I'm very interested in getting a job in the poker room. At this point, I've played live poker two or three times, and it has not gone well because there are two important things in poker. You find a game you can beat, and then you have enough money to play it. I didn't have enough money to play it, so I'd have about two buy-ins to my name of at least money I can afford to lose. Um, and... I remember one time I got it in good and lost and it was just heartbreaking to me. And I'm like, okay, I can't do this clearly until I have more money, even though I've been playing online for micro stakes and seeing this happen, it's for 2% of the size. This really hurts. I understand. Yeah, I need to get a job now. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. It's you can't play well if you don't have a bankroll because your risk of it, you know, if you're a professional, you can't go broke. Like, what are you going to do? Mm -hmm. yeah. Uh, so I ended up working in soft count, which is the room in the back of the casino where you count all the money because it was just what was hiring. Uh, I wanted to work in the poker room at first, but there weren't spots available. So I ended up working soft count. This was a rough job. It is 2.45 a.m. to 10.45 a.m. five days a week, but you're never over at 10.45 a.m. You're over when all the money is counted. So the job would be <laughs> show up at 2.40, put on this jumpsuit that has no pockets or anything. You get in a room with your fingerprint and then you swipe a badge and then you call security and they open the door and then they like check your shoes. You know, when you have to shake your jacket for secure for surveillance before you put it on. And then you go in this recorded room with like a hundred cameras and 45 microphones. That is the size of most people's living rooms. This and then is, you go this is basically like the scene in breaking bad when like, when like Jesse and Walter, they get like hired help to like work the mess yeah, where, at, you know, <laughs> at the start of the day, no. But then at the end, once you, you go to the slot machines, you pull the briefcase of money out, you put an empty briefcase in, and then you do that for all the machines. You take them in the back. Uh, security brings the, the ones from table games. And then, yeah, you grab a big handful of money. You put it through a fat money counter and goes, and then it sorts them by bill and then it stops and you strap it and you throw it on the table. And then at the end of the day, at like 11 AM, there's that giant scene of four or five, $10 million, whatever it was for the day, just on the table. And if you're a dollar, a dollar off, you all stay and recount it until you find it. There's a no variance. There's a no variance, uh, policy tolerance, I guess. What's the craziest thing that ever happened on that job in that job for you? Either to you or what or something you've witnessed um, that you're allowed to talk about, I guess. Yeah. Uh, I didn't sign any NDA, so I could talk about. <laughs> um, so there's this procedure that happens when you drop money. If money touches the ground, just because they have all these procedures just to ensure if you do everything procedurally that we say, if money's missing, we know you didn't touch it. 
you know, so you just follow their procedure and you're protected. One of the procedures is if money's dropped, you yell money down, everyone puts their hands up in the air and whoever dropped it calls surveillance and security comes, picks it up and then you all clear your hands and then you resume work. We had a guy drop a half a million dollars and just start, sh it's his first day. He carrying a half million dollars and they're, they're in bricks, right? It's a rubber band. You have a strap of 100 bills, and then you band it. And if yeah, you have you're not five gonna have straps, that you scene, break like, it. You know, you're not going to have like bills like floating in the air or anything, right? Yeah, you're not going to just take money, throw it up. But he dropped it, and how it hit the counter, one of them just popped. And then almost every time you drop money, it's something somewhat secure, or it's one loose bill. This was the first time I've just seen... A million, like a half million dollars, like some chunk of it floating around the room empty. And the guy starts picking it up and everyone's like, no, no. And he's like, yes, yes, pick it up. <laughs> and what we do is we say money down and he's like, no, no, money up. And he keeps reaching to pick it all up. <laughs> but he, he was new. <laughs> that was like, hmm, it's the first time I'm going to have to stay like 12 hours or something. <laughs> Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, well, hopefully, oh, and then, so it got, it got rectified, but it took it took 12 hours. Yeah. Uh, the other thing is when you need a guest to cash out of a machine so you can swap the empty case of money with the full one that's in the machine and they refuse to. That's happened a couple times. Some guests just will not leave their slot machine and just call security and they basically just will eventually drag them out if they don't. Is so, that some sort of like superstition or they just, they just don't want to leave the machine or they're just, they're just so into it. They just don't ever want to leave or what? So of people that play slots, most of them are logical. Most of them are people that are just gambling with extra money for fun. Some of them are problem gamblers. Some of them have some mental thing going on. Um, I did have one guy when I was, trying to pull him out he goes you can't touch my machiney weenie and he starts stroking the machine and i'm i'm not going to talk to this person anymore something really bad might happen so <laughs> some of the guests there's either from loss or from expectation something happens and sets them up in their brain that yeah. it's just best not to interact mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. so i i think it might have just been someone that's lost it Okay, so you're you're working the back room, and uh, did you do that for a whole year as you were like just grinding poker or what? I did it. So I would I would work my ten forty five, or sorry, my two forty five a.m. shift until it's done, which would be around eleven or noon. Then I would go to the poker room. I would play a one three game. Mm -hmm. Um. My buy-in started really small, and then as I got more, I'd buy in for more and more. And I would just play poker kind of like how I was grinding moto. I would work a 10-hour shift. I'd play poker for four or five hours, go home, shower, sleep, rinse, repeat. I did that for about three months until I built up enough money to have a bankroll. Um, I didn't quit my job because I still have life expenses and stuff, but I did transfer to the poker room as a cashier. Um, I met all the dealers. I got a little more familiar. That job was so much more relaxing than the <laughs> the money count job. It's, you really do learn how to execute procedure with that job. You learn this is how money's supposed to be spread. This is how chips are supposed to be spread. You learn the casino industry very well if you start there. Mm -hmm. 
And then I remember the first day I was in the poker room, I, I dropped like a chip and I just did this. And I was like, what are you doing? You just pick it up. You know, it's, it's, it's different. It's, we're not you're, in, you're expecting some sort of long procedure or yeah. hands up or something. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I transferred there, became a cashier. I did that for about nine months while I was still playing. Um, people that worked there started to, to realize that I had a clue what I was doing in poker. Uh, I was always a little scared to become a dealer because of the, the, there's a little bit of tension when you play where you work, you might leave a bad taste in someone's mouth and then they might not tip you as well. Um, if you have a, a weird interaction, you really don't want the house to rule in your favor because it might look like some sort of bias. So they normally won't. But then that means when something awkward comes up, like you might get the butt end of it, where if you played somewhere else, you might be treated a little more equally. So I was a little worried about that. Um, and I talked to some of the dealers that play and it was clear that they're not trying to play for profit, but they all said that it wasn't as big of a deal. So I gave it a shot. Um, some little things did come up, but most of them didn't care. Um, most of the players just understand a dealer's a dealer, a player's a player, um, especially in the games that I was playing. Mm -hmm. What What do you mean, especially in the games that you're playing? Because there are smaller stakes or because of the, the people you knew that were regulars or, or what? Um, I think partially the regular, where I was at, there were a whole lot of dealers that were also players. Like our poker room had a very high uh, percentage of staff that played on their days off. So it was a much more common thing. Uh, there was every once in a while, there's some guest that shows up and I try not to mention that I work there unless it comes up in conversation. I did have one spot where one guy thought one guy made some absurd accusation that, you know, it's rigged. It's like, everyone's just accusing that the house is rigged. And he ended up just basically trying to hunt for comps what the the manager told me he's okay. like ah this guy's just hunting for comps you know just but sometimes things do get awkward. fabrications or excuses yeah yeah and anyone for, for anyone out there that thinks any form of gambling is rigged if you're playing at some underground house game it could be but all that these large companies need to do to make millions per day is not rig it the slot machine isn't rigged. It's rigged by nature because it pays out less than you put in. Right. But it's not rigged to pay you. It's like in poker, the house doesn't care who wins or loses. They just care that X hands per hour happen. And as long as X hands per hour happen, they don't have incentive to... They don't need to ever rig any sort of game. But when you go through a long stretch of loss or a long stretch of winning, it's hard to process... What is variance versus what is reality? There's a, mm -hmm. there's an old saying that Dane Legrandu had in an interview, which is, if you flip a coin twenty times, and it led, lands heads all twenty times, what's the probability that it will land heads on the next flip? And lots of people, most people say, it's fifty fifty. Some people say, well, it's bound to be tails, which it's fifty fifty, but Daniel's response was, it's 100% because the coin's rigged. And you should figure that out by the 20th flip, that it's rigged. Because some things, some things are 
improbable and some things are astronomically improbable. And it's important to realize the difference between right. those. Like you can lose 10 hands in a row. You can lose 18 out of 20, you know, but sometimes you need to open your eyes and ask why is this happening? And most of the time it's just variance. It's such a fascinating field because I feel like playing poker or just going to casinos to gamble in some ways you should become more aware of probability and odds and cheating and rigged versus non-rigged. But on the other hand, there are lots of people who are in that scene who almost like deliberately choose not to care about these things. It's, it's, it's this weird like world where you have these highly rational, like math people in it. And I, I think you're probably in that category because you understand these things, but there's also people who are just like outright degenerates that are just like, yeah. I just want to throw money around. And it's like this weird thing where these two worlds like mingle all the time. I'm not sure if I've described it well, but it's just a really weird pool of like people in there. You know what I mean? Yeah, well, first off, anyone that that plays for a living is probably a degenerate to, to some level. <laughs> you know, you can't you can't make it if you're not to some degree willing to there's some, jump there's some, on the so volatility some wagon. Rationality in there already baked in there. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I do think a lot of people at the poker table care about things other than if they won or lost, other than if they played it well. Um, there is a whole a whole bunch of false positives being thrown around. People will take actions and get the result they wanted, not knowing that they played it horribly. Yep. And they will get, there's a lot of, I shouldn't say false positives. I should say or false just weird verifications. Yeah, yeah, yeah. A lot of people, they will play poorly and get rewarded for it much more so than in Magic. So I feel that this game has more variance than Magic because there are more people getting away with playing suboptimally in this game. There's a whole lot of just, I would say almost half of the feedback you get is just wrong. Like if you put your money in good and you lose, that might be some feedback that your thoughts might've been wrong. Like you're trying to decide if you can go all in with a straight and they snap call you and they have a full house. If you look at that one instance in a vacuum, you might think, okay, well, I shouldn't go all in with straights on this board because they could have a full house. Um, people will miss value because of that, even though like the full, like when I said, I was talking about my friend focusing on only one part, that is a possibility of things that can happen, but it's just here. There's all this other stuff that can happen too. Mm -hmm. um, so a lot of players feel that they're better at poker than they are because they keep doing the same bad things and it works for them. Mm -hmm. um, you'll see people vastly overplay hands and everyone will fold and they'll think that's a win, but really they were about to take someone's entire stack and let the guy off the hook and they don't realize it. Right. And I think that's part of what keeps poker alive is there are, there are people that think they're playing right and there aren't. There are also people that just want other people to know that they got unlucky or they got a bad beat or they got this hand and it didn't hold. Yeah. Lots of times people will take a certain action that, to that social aspect show of that. being able to tell the story about it is almost as important for some people as the actual winning and losing, right? Yeah. Um, well, here's the thing is that everyone, 
Magic, there's there are there is like recreational players. There there are winning and losing players in Magic, but for the most part, everyone that's there wants to have fun, and that's their incentive. Um, some people care more about winning than fun. Some people care more about fun than winning, and that might be where you draw the line. In poker, we we call them like regs, like regular players and recs for recreationals. And there's like a reg and a rec dynamic that kind of happens where if you're the reg, you care about winning money as your primary factor. And if you're the rec, you care about having fun. So if you're the reg and you're winning, you probably want to make sure that other guy has fun. So that transaction keeps happening. Right. There's like different forms of EV and the EV I'm gaining is money. And the EV you're gaining is entertainment. Right. Right. For some people, it's like going to a movie. It's just like entertainment dollars. For other people, it's like uh, like yourself. It's income. But that that interesting uh, mix, right, where you have to not get these people to quit because they need to come back because you need to farm them the next day or the next week or whenever, right? So yeah, because you can't try just not have to all think about it as each other. There's a there's obviously a kind of like zero something with poker for sure, right? But it's just you, you can't always think about it. Yeah. Um. At the end of the day, it is a zero-sum game. You know. Um, so, so how how do you decide to play live poker versus online poker? Is there something inherent to to playing like sitting down and playing less hands per hour that's just like better ultimately for your bankroll or whatever it is? Yeah. So when I was playing online, I was one of the advantages of playing online is. One, you got to be at your home and play. Two, you can open multiple tables at once. I'm sure everyone's at least seen a clip of someone playing 10, 12, 24 tables. That's something you can do. Um, my decision skills, I found, dropped drastically after four, so I just kept it to four. Um, and if you're playing online and you're playing, let's say you're on a site that gets out about 80 hands per hour on a single table. If you got four tables, that's 320 hands an hour. Live poker averages around 30 to 35, so I was getting 10 times the volume online, which is a big deal. But when you play live, the games are so much softer. When, when you're playing online, as soon as you hit any real stakes, the vast majority of the players have some clue of at least how the game should go. Like, pre-flop, like, most of my hands should raise to this amount, and this player should either call or fold or raise to this other amount. And they understand these like play pattern kind of things. But live poker, they have their own play patterns that are unique to the small stakes games, unique to this kind of camaraderie aspect that happens, even though we're in a zero sum game, there's still a little bit of give and take. People buy people beers all the time at the table. And it's not like a malicious, I want to get you drunk so that I take your money kind of thing. It's normally not, even though it's people just think more it's- social. Basically. Yeah, and there's there's the social aspect, and you want to make sure they're in some essence the losing players are your customers. You want to make sure they're having a good time. When you start to get to higher and higher stakes, the recreational players they run the game. They choose. Okay, we want to do a bomb pot. We want to do an orbit of PLO. We want a straddle. We want a double straddle. We want <laughs> sometimes they're like we want an ocean card. We want like one more card at the end. Yeah. We want to play the seven deuce game or whatever it is. Yeah, we want to yeah. play the seven deuce game. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Um, that that's so true, and I, I think for me that's kind of like a parallel to Magic Online because when I 
first started playing Magic, uh, up until probably 2020, I had never played Magic online. Uh, when we interacted, I think in GPs or SCGs or wherever, when I was in the US, I realized now, going looking back, that I was such a fish. I was basically like dead money in those GPs or events. And I had fun. Like I was one of the, the what you call the wrecks, right? Uh, I, I was a fun, I had fun playing recreationally, but when I played match, started playing Magic Online over the last couple of years, it's just night and day, man. Like, like just getting those reps and just like playing and playing against good players all the time, even in leagues or whatever, like, my game leveled up so fast in like six months of playing Magic Online compared to like 10 years of playing Magic on paper. Like it was unbelievable. And I saw I started to see the results like honestly after I started playing Magic Online going to paper events, like it was just night and day. Like I felt like, my God, I was like living in a cave like the last 10 years. <laughs> and And that's how I felt when I played online poker too. Like I leveled up so quickly and I didn't actually end up do doing what you did, which is go full-time poker. But I have such a better understanding of fundamentals just from grinding like those few months or year or two, like playing like micro stakes on online mm -hmm. <laughs> that I feel like everyone should just do that. And, and, and I just feel like the parallel is that like, honestly speaking, like the paper tournaments in Magic are just so much softer than like playing a challenge or playing even a, a league. It's, it's just it's like it's the same game but it's not really the same game so I, I i totally understand what you're saying like you could probably just make more playing offline right for poker it's just it's yeah not the same um game. i have a question for you do you think that magic online and live magic do they feel like two separate games to you they don't really and i i would say this because i feel like playing magic online i'm not going to speak for arena I, I i tried arena never really got into it um you really learn like what real magic is right like the stack uh you know how things work um how to play technically tight and i also feel like online and offline magic are similar because people way overrate things like hand reading and what your opponent what like bluffing and things like that in magic where I feel like in Magic, like 80% of the time, if you just play ABC Magic, like, sure, you got to think about what your opponents might have. But if you just play the same way online versus offline, you'll still get pretty decent results. I'm not talking about like, oh, you know, you do this and you can like be a pro tour level player. But like when it comes to just grinding SCGs or whatever, like local, large scale, regional events, like just playing the way you play on magic online does it like 80% of the time. That's my, that's my belief. And then this is validated from speaking to grinders, players, like people who have done it basically through this interview. Yeah. So I definitely feel that you get a more technical understanding of the game when you play on magic online. Cause you can't, you can't ever miss a trigger. You can't do things out of sequence. The, the client won't allow you to do that. I feel that they're kind of the same game, but also not. Online and live poker kind of feel like that, too. Um, online poker, I don't feel like I am exchanging EV with, like, a recce player in some sort of way. Um, on Magic Online, I mean, you've seen the Endless Salt photos through Twitter that have happened on the years. A oh, lot I mean, of players happened, very clearly aren't so. trying to... Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, a lot of, yeah you've, you've posted your own. I've seen a couple. I've seen uh, you post a few, actually, yeah. There's some good ones. 
But yeah, no one, like, like you were saying about no one is bluffing in magic. Now, how could you bluff in magic? You can attack and represent a combat trick or something like that. You can, on turn four, make an attack that looks dumb, yeah, you but can, you can you're representing your two, two a huge charge. Three, three, and like if, if they're a high-level player, they'll actually think about it. It's similar to poker, right? Like you can't bluff someone yeah. who's a fish. So it's like you would never do that if if 99% of the time they would just block. So you, But there is some high-level play, but it doesn't happen super often. So. Yeah, there is. Um, so I do think it's different also because like the clock system works differently on Magic Online. You have a chess clock. If I want to spend four minutes resolving a brainstorm, I can. God damn it. <laughs> you know, <laughs> that that was probably also helpful for me learning the deck being allowed four minutes to resolve a brainstorm. Yeah. Um, The fact that. You can't miss a trigger. You can't try to bait someone into things. You can't, like you said, just playing ABC gets the job done because you're going to put out a strategy that has this as your base bar and their strategy is just going to like be based right here and you're just going to win just because your baseline is going to be higher than theirs if you do nothing fancy. Mm -hmm. And then when you move to live, I've actually started playing what I would call exploitative magic since I've been back in the game. Um, since taking a long poker break, I played a, uh, a 5k in Oakland and funny enough, one of my poker books, one of the books I read recently was called verbal poker tells and it's him. He took 10 or so years of televised poker, analyzed like the scripts of what people said and their body languages. And it's a book of tells, right? Mm -hmm. It's a book of tells that is its source was 10 or 20 years of televised poker. And it's really cool because he'll say the hand that happened and you can look it up if you have the ability to watch that show. Um, but there are certain, I don't want to say theory of tells, but there are types of tells. Like there are forward tells, there are reverse tells, there are weak statement tells, there are strong statement tells. There are just actions people take if you just look at them at a baseline, what they're doing. So let's say I'm playing Storm in a GP or something. And I'm five and one. And game one, I'm at a point where I know I'm dead, but they know I'm on Storm. They might know because it's me or because of how the game played out. I'm not in the market to try and conceal info. So I might try to go off mm -hmm. just to collect data for them for future oh, games. Oh, interesting. Like, sometimes versus Delver, if they're about to... Like, they have lethal on board, and I don't even have a tutor. I'm going to, like, shuffle my cards. I'm going to sequence in a way that baits them. I'm going to cast a dark ritual, see if they would like to counter that dark ritual, see how they think, see how they respond, see how they hold their cards when they're doing that. There's kind of categories of how people respond. Some people try to stop you as soon as possible. Some people right. try to wait till the last second. Some people wait way too late, like and they would put on the stack. That is way more important to know than concealing your your deck or what you might do, right? Like knowing yeah. more about them means more to you as a player than what they might know about you, because they're not yes. even looking to learn from from you. So, right? <laughs> yeah, you know what's funny is that that's that happens in poker too. Like there will be someone that is just they might be drunk, they might just be a crazy player, that might be their their player style, they're playing 80% of their hands, they're always coming in for a raise, they're always betting the flop, they're always betting the turn, they're probably betting the river, and the way you counter it is you just trap them a bunch, and you don't play garbage, 
and you make something you hold on for your life. That is the appropriate counter to it. But a lot of these people that play that way, the low stakes players don't even know how to counter them. So they do well, even though everyone knows what they're doing, they don't realize that you have rock and I have paper and you need to play scissors. They don't understand how to make that deviation, how to exploit or counter exploit. Yeah. So going back to what you're saying about your your journey with poker, like where are you at now? Because you you went you've you've gone full time, right? Mm -hmm. I have. Right? That is right. And how's that going? Like, is it is it um... it's going pretty well, to say the least. OK. And it's I'm... not just because you're running good, like you figure something out, right? Well, I track all my results so I can objectively say if I'm running good or running bad. Um, but the hard part of live poker is because you get so few hands, an upswing or a downswing or what can be just considered under sheer variance can last way longer than online. Sometimes I'd have a downswing that online would take a week to get out of. And then if you look hand count wise, that's like five months of me playing live. But yeah. the players are better. And there's that thing you happen, like what you said on Magic Online, that everyone felt tough. The reason that Magic Online is so much tougher is because you get in more volume, the games go faster, all the good players can just play from their house if they want. Same thing happens in poker. Because you get more hands per hour, the bad players, they either go broke or they stop being bad. Like, those are your two options. If you're losing on Magic <laughs> Online and you, like, you only have 100 tickets in your account and you don't have the money to throw it in, like, you're either going to play better or you're going to, like, lose your Moto account, you know? Yep, <laughs> and so much. there's just more natural selection in any online form of a game compared to live, just because volumes, like, it's a volume game, you know? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. For so sure. where I'm at right now, um, I was grinding 1-3 as my primary stake level. The, the really important thing to my success, I feel, is that I spent more time studying than playing at the start. And now I'm a little bit closer to flipping it. I used to track my study hours, but then it feels like a chore and so much of studying I actually enjoy where mm -hmm. when I was a music student, if I'm practicing a chart and I'm stressing out about other class projects, like how much time do I really want to leave for me to get better at this chart that we're not performing for a month when I have a paper due, then you have a rehearsal and you're behind on the rehearsal and then you feel stressed to catch up on that. But then you have this GE class you really don't care about, but you can't afford to fail it. And there's, there was so much more of a balancing act going on with me in college that I feel that I didn't get all I could have out of rehearsal, not, not rehearsal, pract private practice time mm -hmm. and even private instruction. I just feel like I didn't benefit from it. But when I started poker, it was what I was doing. I spent, my focus was just on that. And because I feel like I have a gist of the concepts, but I don't know how to apply them. There were a lot of light bulb moments that happened. Um, and it's really inspiring to keep going if you have these light bulb moments that happen. Yeah. Because you feel like you're learning something new, you're adjusting, it feeds into like this feeling that you, we are self-aware that like we can actually self-actualize and level up, right? Uh, as the yeah. cliche goes, uh, it, it, that, that's just so rewarding. And uh, actually it's interesting the way you mentioned like school, it is like portfolio management, right? It's almost like. It's almost like running a business or, or, or being in charge of a department. It's like 
when you're in a school or whether or you're a manager, you have to balance these different things. Like I have to like, you know, pay my employees. I have to coach my employees. I have to do this. I have to like do paperwork. I have to do like different things. Whereas poker, it's more like a singular pursuit where there's one key performance indicator. It's like how much money are you making and everything you're doing is trying to feed into that. So there's something more, I don't want to say pure, but there's something more like direct in terms of like what your goal is, right? Whereas like many times, often in life, it's it's more about like you're balancing all these different commitments that may not have much to do with each other, but you need to balance them all or else you will just quote unquote fail, right? You, you just yeah. like, you can't keep going unless you do it. So that, that, that is, is very different. It is definitely you versus the world in that sense. Um, and yeah, everything is budgeting, like time budgeting, financially budgeting, um, interest budgeting, um, budget your interactions. Like there, I, I know some people that I play with that they just love to talk about the game. And sometimes it's a little too much. And I think that it might scare the rec players if you talk about how much you know about this game. Um, and that's why it's good to talk about it with Probably, other people uh, that you know are winning players. Channel instead or something. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And if you if you have that, you might find that alternative way to express that. And I get it. I love talking strategy. I so many different little Facebook chat thingies. Um, with magic. Well, even this conversation, like I can tell. Moment. Like I can tell you're really opening up when you're like talking about the. Um the inner stuff about poker, right? And, and magic. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, I'm just wondering, like, in terms of, okay, this, this is something I probably should just Google search, but like, there is this often like this, this school of thought that I've heard about, which is fairly new, because it wasn't around when I was playing poker as much. But this idea of like GTO or like game theory optimal, is there, mm -hmm. is there just like a proper optimal way to make every play now? Or is it is it or is that too simplistic because you still have to adapt to what your opponents are doing? Yeah. So so that's I'm, I'm might not be surprising if I say yes and no because yeah, it depends, right? Yeah. yeah. So GTO or Game Theory Optimal is any it's a way to find Nash equilibrium, which is a point where if you have a game and you define a game as two people or two parties making zero sum interactions. If I win, you lose. If you lose, I win. There's no exception to that. If we both lose, we tie. No one profits, no one loses. If you start with that assumption, and we also start with the assumption that I know what you're doing and you know what I'm doing, so there's no leveling war possible. It is how can I play so that you cannot win? And how can you play so that I cannot win? Or sometimes you're in a spot in poker where your baseline is lose, but your goal is to lose less. For example, when you have money in and someone raises you or there's a pot and someone bets, you don't need to win half the time. If the pot is $200 and they bet $100, you only need to win a third of the time because you're putting in 100 to win 300 or a quarter of the time. Excuse me. Someone bets pot, you need to win a third. Um, Game Theory Optimal is a way to play poker that is safe and protected. And if you play a GTO approach, it might really feel like chess. Um. I was re-watching Queen's Gambit recently, and at one point they, I forget the main character's name, they interview her after winning some large event, and they ask what she likes about the chessboard, and she says that it's like her own little world, and she feels safe here, and if I make a mistake, it's, it's on myself. And that is very true in poker in the very long run. 
one hand, anyone can win. 10,000 hands, the better player almost always wins. Um, and Game Theory Optimal is a way to learn the game because what you want to do as a player is learn how to play a pretty fundamentally sound strategy and then adjust for what they're doing incorrectly. That's how you're going to make the most money. I don't need to find the Game Theory amount of bluff combos on the river if this guy ain't folding. I know what the theoretical bluff combos are though. And that's very, very important because you want to know what the perfect strategy is and then deviate it based on your assumptions of people. But if you don't know what the best way to play is at a baseline, you're not gonna know how to deviate. I had an example with a friend where he thought that he should fold more than in theory. And we're trying to discuss if he should fold this hand, which we don't think you should fold in a vacuum. He's saying, well, this guy's pretty tight, so this hand, like, it's probably a theory call, but in a vacuum, it might just be a fold. And we're both dead wrong. It's just a pure fold in a vacuum. It's just a fold. And then if you add on the fact that this guy isn't bluffing you, like, enough, it's definitely a fold. So it's important to keep it goes studying from a fold for that to reason. A fold more. Okay. okay. Yeah, it goes from a fold to, oh my god, put those cards in the muck now. Yeah. But I think it's very important to learn GTO just so you know what is actually going on in the game. What are the mechanics? What are, I guess, like, people like to talk about math and probability in the game. I really think that that's more of a GTO study than a math thing. The only math that exists in poker is pot odds. Like, when people say there's too much math for Storm, it's like, no, this isn't math. This is you solving a puzzle. It's different from math. Yeah, you called it logic, I think. Logic, yeah. Poker is not math, it is logic. It does have elements of math, and I feel Storm is kind of like that the same way. But there is constant leveling going on in poker. Um, and the thing is, most people just aren't adapting fast enough. Unless you're playing in games with your friends, and like you know they know, and there's, there's a lot of trying to best each other going on. Like, the old man with the coffee is probably not... If you're exploiting him by folding or you're exploiting by raising him because you know he's going to fold unless he has the nuts, he's not going to just realize you're over-bluffing and put his coffee down and put his foot down and go, I call now. No, he's still afraid to call it off without the nuts. That's not He's still changing. the guy with the coffee. And you mentioned yeah. like, GTO has some big assumptions, right? Like, there's no leveling going on. Like, you can't, yeah, like, GTO's a vacuum. person. Yeah, so it's almost like a... It's like a default baseline margin of safety. That's like what your what your starting point is. But then then you mm -hmm. have to like factor in real world stuff, and that that guy with the coffee is not gonna magically self actualize and figure you out or something mm -hmm. like that. Yeah, and game theory is based around clairvoyance. That I know your strategy, and you know my strategy. Like and no fog of war, perfect information, yeah, all that kind of stuff. Exactly. Um, and if you know I'm over bluffing then you should call me down lighter. If you know I'm under bluffing, you should fold something that is a bluff catcher. Um, mm -hmm. A lot of my success in poker is if there are two decisions, a lot of times that's the other hard part about poker is that it's really hard to end up with, like no one can execute GTO. No one can execute a game theory optimal strategy unless you have like 10 big blinds in front of you. If you're 200 big blinds deep and the board's like King Jack six, and you have queen 10, which is a straight draw. It's like a, a strong drawing hand on that board you can bluff with. The The correct GTO option is going to be like when they bet to like call 82% and raise 18%. And then if 
you're shorter, it'll change to like call 60 and raise 40. And you can learn these heuristics and try and play as close to it as possible. Um, unless How do you you're... apply that though? It's like knowing whether it's 81%, 60%. The way you apply it is you look at a spot and you go, okay, it's like ace, 10, four. What are we doing with our ace X here? What are we doing with our tents? What are we doing with our inside straight draws? What are we doing with our backdoor hands? Or you go, what are our bluff hands? What are the value hands? What are the bluffing hands? If you look at, you can kind of build your own GTO. If you take a spot, you can build unexploitability without playing GTO. You can have a spot where, let's say I want to represent the nut flush and nothing else. And I estimate that I land on the river with six different nut flush hands. We'll call, we call them combos in poker. It's like the the way you can have two cards. So like if there are four aces in the deck, there are six different combinations you can be dealt ace-ace. So you can have like heart spade, heart diamond, heart club. You know. Combos. I'm, getting, I'm getting a little too in-depth, I apologize. But you can build your own indifference where if every time you bet, you lay them a price. If the pot is 500 and I bet 1,000, I bet two times the pot. They're risking 1,000 to win 2,500. So they need to be right 40% of the time, which means if I want to just put you in the blender, I can just have the hand 60% and bluff 40. And now I don't right. care if you call or fold. If you call, you win when I have it, or I win when I have it, yeah. and I lose when I don't. You're, you're at peace with the fact that you, you set up those odds so that... Yes, the... so... <laughs> A lot of times your goal is to set up indifference if you're trying to play in a vacuum, but then if you know how people handle the situation of indifference, this is where you really start to gain clairvoyance on people then and really blender them. You know that when they're in flight or fight, they either fight or they flight, and you can just always have it or never have it. And there and are some really people what... that I will... Sorry, go yeah, ahead. And that, and, sorry that, that's really what gaming or the fun of it comes down to, is like when you're putting people in discomfort right or you're putting them into like to make decisions they don't want to make or you're just making them uncomfortable period like it that's that's really i don't know if that's like the path to winning but that's like for me that's kind of like the path in fun right <laughs> i don't well, know that's that, that sounded like your magic online path is just i'm gonna play my game and you're gonna make worse decisions than me you're gonna make more mistakes and i'm gonna have a higher win rate than you at the end of the day mm-hmm and that's kind of so. true in poker. And then you start to grow from there. You start to identify places that you can grab more than your allotted share based on their mistakes and your mistakes. Um, and there's like a nonstop thing going on, you know? Nonstop thing. Like does, this, does this mean that someone, or maybe someone's already ha someone already has, like, could one build uh, the perfect poker AI or bot? that just uses the GTO handbook? And would that bot become a winning player over time? Yes, that is 100% too. If someone plays, if you have a bot, a bot is capable of playing game theory optimal. I know that because we have these tools that exist. We have tools to study the game, which are, we have the tools, they call them solvers. You might've heard of them in chess. There's one called Stockfish that came out like a decade ago, and now Google has their Alpha Zero one. Um, and there exist these bots in chess, and what they do is they look at decision trees and they weigh down the EV of one move versus another. Um, 
in poker, they can actually just look at all flop turn river runouts, like what is going to be the highest EV strategy, assuming you know everything you're going to do and everything I'm going to do. And I have studying like software on my computer to get better at the game. And you use it so that you can study how to play the game theory way. But you can also, if you think someone is not folding enough, you can ask it, what if they don't fold enough? What should I do? And then it's going to go, well, you bluff like a madman, of course. And you can input a certain thing and get... What a solver really is doing at the end of the day is it is taking one strategy and saying, how can I counter it as hard as possible? What is the most profitable? How can I count? How can I exploit you as hard as possible? And this guy goes, how can I counter exploit you hard as possible? And they go back and forth until they find an equilibrium. But then if you assume someone sucks in some way, shape or form, you can just put that in and it'll output the most exploitative thing possible. And that's how you really end up making a living in this game is you aren't trying to, if you're playing larger stakes, just staying afloat and playing a very protected strategy where no one can beat you in the long run is safe and it's fine. And you'll make a living doing that, but you need to be playing like 10, 20, you need to be playing games where there's thousands on the table and everyone's stacked in order for that strategy to be better than trying to go for the throat of people where if you're playing a two five game, if you're not going for the throat of people, you're going to make a little, you're not going to be able to make a living. And maybe that's fine. If you're, if you're just trying to make a little, if you're trying to grind up your role, that might be how you start. But most people, you know, they're just trying to have fun. So it's, this is all way beyond how most players approach the game. But let's say that you have a, a solver or a companion with you, like on your, on your screen while you're playing online. Couldn't someone just um, start playing poker with no knowledge and just do exactly what the program tells them to do and just like f fire up like 10 tables? Like wouldn't that player with 100% bot assistance or AI assistance or <clears throat> solver assistance be a winning player, like given enough time? And it, like if you just follow exactly what the solver program tells you to do, like theoretically I could be a winning player anyone could be right i don't know if that's like illegal or not but let's just take that aside for a second like if i just had the perfect robot companion tell me what to do couldn't i just ultimately be winning like just yes. do exactly what it tells me to do yeah absolutely you totally could and sites every major site that is licensed and regulated which those don't exist in most of america because there's there's a long issue with license and regulating gambling sites it's there's like ethical arguments why it isn't allowed in lots of states um but most of the states most outside of america there are sites poker stars um uh what's the other one gg poker party poker 888 all these large sites that host five to six figures of volume they have um what's the word they have a a department that checks for it. I'm trying to forget the name of it. I think it's an integrity department. Okay. It's what they call Basically it. They like all have a designated fraud department. Okay. Yeah. So a fraud detection department. History. Yeah. And they know what perfect poker looks like. Everyone, it is publicly knowledgeable. What is yeah. like correct poker in a vacuum. It is just incredibly difficult to execute to that degree. And the bots know if you're doing it, they know, like they can check to make sure that if pre-flop you're supposed to take like king jack and like play at 88 percent and fold at 12 they know you're folding at 12 percent of the time because they have your hands written down they have a log of all your hands that they're doing and they're constantly 
checking through all your stuff, they're they've been pretty good at finding those kind and of bots. There's one site. You, like, even if you deliberately throw in like some misplays every once in a while, just to like keep. The, yeah, but then it's, the then you're just being back. a human. And there, I mean, there's certainly a way you can get around it. There was a guy that, uh, um, there were two people that were banned from an online site recently because they they had an RTA. Real-time assistance is what you're describing. We call it RTA. They had an RTA tool on a separate computer. Um, and they were more or less playing on one computer, looking up the solutions on the other. The only thing, though, is that where technology is at right now, what you could do is solve for every single spot in advance and then look it up like through an archive, basically. That is a way you could do that. But all of this technology that solves, it takes a whole lot of computing power to know how to play this game correctly. When I try and use my software on my computer, like, I'd say a quarter of the time, my computer's not strong enough to do it. I have a friend that rented a server in a different country so that he can look up these spots because his computer that has like 32 gigs of RAM can't do it. Mm -hmm. So there are apps that have libraries of them. They, yeah. for integrity, safety reasons, they all intentionally lag. So that is an issue that can come up. Mm. Um, we have found pretty good ways to work around it as a community though, but mm -hmm. that could eventually become a more serious issue, but I have no worries that live poker will ever die just because of how soft the games are, why people play, how they play, what what leads to them making decisions in real time. I'm not worried about poker dying at all. Yeah. Um, this has been a really fascinating conversation. This is honestly one of the, <laughs> the more interesting conversations I had the, the, the pleasure of doing on this show. Um, I will just leave you Cliffy with one last question, and this is going to be probably the most like inside baseball or inside poker question of them all. That big controversy. Um, Mike Paul Garrett. Yes, Garrett. Oh, Garrett Adelstein. Garrett Adelstein versus Robbie. What happened there? What's your take? Yeah. So the the first large case like this that I saw was a guy named Mike Postle that was cheating on oh, a live that's right, stream. Yeah. That was the that was yeah. the predecessor, right? Yes. Yeah, and he's playing at a casino like somewhat local to me. Like I've played there before. I haven't played on the live stream there. Um, he was cheating and he was terrible at it. He would, you know, fold a full house correctly and then call with ace high correctly and like basically the same spot because the guy had the correct cards the other time. And if you took a world-class player and you gave them insider info, you told them what the whole cards were and you gave them the ability to cheat and they did it very carefully and they did like minor deviations, not massive deviations. They probably never get caught. Um, I think that there is some chance that... so. For anyone that doesn't know, there's this lady, Robbie Jade Lou, that was on a pretty high stakes live cash stream. And one of the end bosses of that stream, his name's Garrett Adelstein, um, they got in a large hand and Garrett tried to bluff her. Um, and she made an absurdly light hero call. And the reason it is absurd is because Half of the time Garrett is bluffing, you still lose. Your hand is so bad, you lose when he's bluffing. And it was a hand that had very bad properties, but she explained them as good properties, which... 
there's a good chance that she's just Not ignorant and yeah, yeah, there's there's a very large chance that she's just ignorant and just decided he's been pushing me around all day. I call and didn't make, make the. I'm going to make a stand. And she didn't make the connection that this is not a hand. This is a hand I literally cannot make a stand with because it's like bo so bottom of the barrel. It's like, I understand you're pushing me around, but I cannot. It's like if someone's egging you to fight and like <laughs> you have boxing gloves and then later they're egging you to fight and you have your fists and then later they're egging you to fight and your hands are broken. You're like, okay, now I'll fight. It's like, this that doesn't work. Hill to make a stand. Yeah. The, yes. And... I will say that it totally, if you look at the hand in a vacuum, when I looked at it, it definitely looked like cheating. And there were a lot of weird things that happened. Like we found out someone in the game was backing her, providing her money to play in the game, which is not something you should do if you're both sitting at the table because it gives you the opportunity to collude. Mm -hmm. um, I do not think that... I think at the end of the day, she didn't cheat, but I'm not 100% certain. It's like no one's 100% certain on this. They did an investigation. They didn't find anything. Um, they found a lot of very weird things. Like they found that someone stole money and they found that those people were right. um, were staking each other or that one staked the other. Um, and there's a lot of people. I heard there's a lot of people in LA that are kind of seeking attention. You know, there's... There's yeah. the the industry there. A lot of people there are trying to get their name out people there. People came out of the woodwork and started saying stuff in support or not in support of one player. Like there was a whole bunch of stuff that, to the point where I think Garrett actually came out recently on um, what was that podcast he did with uh, uh with with Polk right? With where Doug Polk, yeah, as, yeah, where he started saying stuff because he's like, I can't be silent anymore. Just there's just too much like. Yeah, he had an awkward scenario where he doesn't want to, like, he wants to express his opinion because he feels he's been cheated, and he has been cheated. He's talked about that he's been cheated in games before of, um, not live games, private games, he's been cheated, and he knows what cheating looks like. And there is no way that a call like that has ever happened in the history of the world. Like, it really is mind-boggling that she was correct. But if she was wrong, like, we would never be talking about this again. We just say oh it's some bimbo just playing with fun money mm -hmm. um i think that she did not cheat but i'm not okay. certain enough i think she's just a bad player that tried to put her foot down and she's just so recreationally that she doesn't know that she is um i do think though that garrett is in the most awkward spot though because he doesn't want to be wrong if he's wrong or if there isn't proof and then be an outcast in the community that he's made a living in he has that tension of i want to play in this game i also want to not be a sellout right it's a it's a tough tough thing to balance for sure i don't envy that for anyone um and something you mentioned is like in this case like it's not black and white like there, there's a range of like is the person cheating or not and it's like one in, in a way we'll never know we'll, we'll never know right like it's just like, unless you're actually um, Robbie, like, we'll never know. It's just, it'll, it'll stay that way. Yeah. yeah. It's really hard if you're any form of a mental athlete and you think that you might not be playing in a fair arena. It, that has to be just the most shaking thing in the world. Yeah. Like, I've, I've spent my life crafting my game plan and I don't get to execute it. Yeah. That's sky's falling stuff. Um, yeah.
but anyhow cliffy it was a pleasure <laughs> talking to you uh thank you so much for taking the time and i wish you uh success in continued success in poker and magic thanks james had a lot of fun